You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Iowa Democrats continue to count their caucus results and blame for the mess is falling squarely on the Iowa Reporter app made by Shadow. Bitbucket repositories are found spreading malware. The attack on Toll Group turns out to be mail to ransomware. The Gomeradon Group is active against Ukrainian targets. Charming Kitten's been fishing. And there's a new legal theory out and about, the pain in the ass defense. We know some colleagues who plead to that. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 6th, 2020. Iowa Democrats continue to count their caucus results, with 97% of the precincts accounted for this morning. The problems at the caucus are now clearly attributed to Shadow's Iowa Reporter app, which proved difficult to use and unable to transmit results correctly to state party headquarters. Shadow's CEO, Gerard Nimira, told Bloomberg he was, quote, really disappointed that some of our technology created an issue that made the caucus difficult, unquote, but also defended Iowa Reporter app as sound and good. He argued that the app worked, but that it just had problems with transmitting data. So it wasn't the app, but just a bug in the code that transmits results data into the state party's data warehouse, a data formatting error specifically. The app was great at adding up caucus preferences, but it just had trouble sending the numbers to Caucus Central. Most observers seem to regard that as a distinction without a difference. The emerging consensus about Shadow's Iowa Reporter app is that it was hastily and carelessly put together and inadequately tested. Clearly done by someone following a tutorial, an off-the-shelf skeleton product, and looks hastily thrown together are among the assessment's motherboard quotes. Shadow's Numira told Motherboard, It's basically a calculator, so that's the approach we took to it, defending the simplicity that many critics have derided. This makes one wonder why the precincts didn't just use a calculator and phone the results in. That's basically what they wound up doing anyway. A calculator, of course, usually won't have an embedded comms capability, which is what Shadow appeared to add, but on the other hand, Mr. Numira suggests that communication issues really weren't part of the app which again makes one wonder what did the app do beyond serve as an adding machine. While the problems in Iowa seem clearly attributable to a buggy, showy, flashy app and not to hacking, that may not have been because Iowa Reporter app was secure. The Iowa caucus may just have dodged a bullet. ProPublica obtained a copy of the app and sent it to security shop Veracode for a security assessment. Veracode found that, quote, Vote totals, passwords, and other sensitive information could have been intercepted or even changed by hackers. Mr. Namira says that his company subjected the app to rigorous independent testing, but at this point that's a distinctly minority view. The Nevada Democratic Party, which had also purchased the app, 
has already said it won't use it when that state conducts its own primary. The Daily Beast says that the Democratic Senate National Committee, which had been considering shadow products, is said to have cut ties with the company. And suspicion about using any mobile apps for election work is spilling over onto other unrelated products. Senator Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, has written Oregon's Secretary of State to advise against using the Votes app in this year's elections. Votes is a mobile application Oregon wants to use for submitting absentee ballots. The idea is to send your vote in by smartphone as opposed to snail mail. Forbes sums up the consensus on Shadow, its Iowa Reporter app, and the Iowa Democratic Party. The caucus mess shows what happens when managers and developers ignore best practices. At any rate, Shadow says it feels terrible about what happened. We'll give the last word to Mr. Namira, who said, I own that. Security firm Cyber Reason has found a malware campaign that's been using Bitbucket repositories as its launching point. Bitbucket is a version control repository hosting service Atlassian owns. Developers working with the Mercurial or Git revision control systems use Bitbucket for source code and development projects. Cyber Reason found seven malware strains being distributed through Bitbucket, Evasive Monero Miner, a quiet cryptojacker, Intel Rapid, a cross-currency altcoin stealer, Predator, which steals credentials from browsers, compromises device cameras, takes screenshots, and rifles cryptocurrency wallets. Azerolt, an information stealer with backdoor capabilities, it's used for spying, credential theft, and again, cryptocurrency stealing. Stop Ransomware, which also comes with downloader capabilities. Vidar, another information stealer. And Amadibot, a reconnaissance trojan. A bit more information has come out about the attack on Australian logistics company Toll Group that's disrupted operations since Sunday. It's ransomware, IT News reports, specifically the Mail2 strain. The Australian Signals Directorate says it's unclear whether the Mail2 attacks are part of a larger campaign. Mail2, also known as Kazakovkovkiz, is a strain of ransomware within the Coco family. The toll group said yesterday that it's still working on recovery and that it regrets the inconvenience to its customers. Sentinel Labs reports on renewed activity against Ukrainian targets by the Gamaradon Group, a state-sponsored APT that Ukrainian security services associate with Russia's FSB. The FSB is generally regarded as Cozy Bear's proprietor. Sentinel Labs sees the activity as a bellwether for future hybrid war when kinetic fighting slows or freezes due to strategic, operational, or diplomatic pressures, expect an intensification of activity in cyberspace. Forbes talked to Sentinel Labs and concluded that Ukraine has effectively become a proving ground. Russian cyber tactics, techniques, and procedures that will eventually be used elsewhere are first deployed against Ukraine. Foreign affairs suggest that the next field of Russian activity may be, surprisingly, Belarus, long the most Russophile state in the near abroad, but a state that's begun to push back against Russian diplomatic moves to bring Minsk even closer to Moscow. If foreign affairs and Sentinel Labs have got it right, there may soon be cozy bear sightings from Gomel to Grodno. The folks at Edgewise Networks have been tracking specific vulnerabilities to be alert for when dealing with Python. Joining us to share their finding is Edgewise founder and CEO Peter Smith. Python backdoors are used in large part by nation-state attackers. Uh, Most recently, we saw an attack against the uh, government of Turkey by operatives from Iran. 
and they leveraged a Python-based backdoor that was assembled via uh, snippets from the internet as well as some custom code. And they're using it to gain a foothold post-exploitation for remote command and control. So what are the mitigations for this? How, how, does, uh, how do you go about protecting your organization from these sorts of things? Uh, well, you know, I think the, the default that people look towards is firewalls. And one of the main problems with firewalls uh, is the types of firewalls that you get in the cloud in particular are layer three, layer four firewalls, which really means that they have no ability to inspect the content of the traffic that's being communicated. And even when an organization uses NGFWs with layer seven deep packet inspection or content inspection, it's really about positive identification of malicious activity. And the thing about a lot of these uh, Python-based backdoors is they don't have a clear signature that would uh, indicate malicious intent, and therefore they go unnoticed. In one of the, uh, the presentations I've done recently, we build a Python backdoor with a bootstrapper for persistence so that even if you try to remove it, it just keeps coming back fully encrypted communications with obfuscation with an encoding mechanism and a mm. full command and control system in 25 lines of Python. And I think the point here is that it is so easy to create something new, unique, and novel that a lot of the existing mitigation techniques that look for positive identification of malicious activity, there simply is no signature to identify these activities as malicious so they go unnoticed. If you go to GitHub, there are presently 230 Python-based backdoors that are available for download right now. At the end of the day, Python is the PowerShell of the Linux and Unix world. It's incredibly pervasive. It's installed by default on virtually every Unix and Linux operating system. It's more or less covert. Uh, malicious scripts are often confused for administrative tools. So EDR platforms, as an example, they might see invocation of Python, but not recognize that this is something that is out of the ordinary. And it's remarkably easy to develop and debug Python scripts. So you can see that Python is this sort of universal language that covers all of the Unixes and even Mac OS. And by the way, it even extends to Windows. Uh, mm. one, of the, one of the Python-based backdoors that I write for demonstration purposes, without any modification, without any special handling, runs perfectly on Linux and multiple versions of Linux, on Mac OS, and on Windows. So mm. it's this ideal framework for malicious actors to build malicious code. That's Peter Smith from Edgewise Networks. There's been another sighting of a familiar creature from the cyber bestiary. Security firm Certfa Lab is calling out Charming Kitten, the well-known Iranian APT, as the group responsible for a recent phishing campaign that spoofed a Wall Street Journal writer's email to prospect targets for further compromise. The fish bait is a bogus request for an interview. Certfa Lab's list of Charming Kitten's interest is broad but still instructive. Quote, private and government institutions, think tanks and academic institutions, organizations with ties to the Baha'i community, and many other European countries, the United States, United Kingdom, and Saudi Arabia, end quote. So a familiar list of rivals, opponents, espionage targets, and interestingly, adherents of the Baha'i faith. 
And finally, accused Vault 7 leaker Joshua Schultz's trial has begun, and the outlines of his defense are coming into focus. Mr. Schultz, a former CIA employee who faces 11 federal counts in connection with the leak of alleged CIA hacking tools to WikiLeaks. His attorneys are arguing, as reported by the Washington Post, that the CIA's security was so miserably inadequate that the Vault 7 material could have been leaked or stolen by any number of people, and that the government can't really determine who was responsible for what prosecutors call the single biggest leak of classified national defense information in the history of the CIA. Why then pick on Mr. Schultz? He was, his defense team says, an easy person to scapegoat. Lead defense counsel Sabrina Schroff told the jurors, quote, he was also a pain in the ass to everyone at the CIA, end quote. Thus, just impossible, but not a disgruntled employee who leaked classified material to get back at his bosses when they didn't stick up for him in a squabble with a colleague, as the prosecution alleges. And so, the pain-in-the-ass defense enters legal history. Not to make light of it, Mr. Schultz is certainly entitled to the presumption of innocence, and that's one theory that would at least partially explain the scapegoating his defense team alleges. But there's another serious point here. As Ms. Schrott put it, being a difficult employee does not make you a criminal. And one must surely agree. If being impossible were a crime, where would any of us be? Especially our editorial staff. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, it's always great to have you back. Um, You know, privacy is on a lot of folks' minds these days, and uh, I've been seeing people talking about um, DNS over HTTPS, uh, DOH, as I'm seeing people call it. Um, what sort of insights can you give us on this? How, how much of a how much should we have our eye on this feature? Well, I think we should definitely have our our eye on this feature as it stands today. If you want to go to a website, let's say www.whitehouse.gov, even if you're using HTTPS within your browser to access that website, your ISP has monitoring in place to see your DNS request. DNS is not encrypted over the internet, but of course, HTTPS is a means of encapsulating the content. So therefore, uh, ISPs have been banking on this for quite a while where they're able to see all of the sites that people are visiting and then they can sell that information for marketing purposes or for further analysis, of course, how to get products to reach those customers. And I think that from a privacy perspective, there hasn't really been a technology or even a need to encrypt a DNS until now. So the way that DNS over HTTPS works is essentially how it sounds when you make an HTTPS request to somewhere like www.whitehouse.gov, it actually encapsulates that DNS request and then reaches out to a DNS service, thus making it uh, hidden from view from anyone in between you and the website. DOH is not quite foolproof. It doesn't quite give you all of the privacy you need. It doesn't take away the need for secure VPN or proxy or uh, HTTPS, you still need to have all of those to be completely or nearly completely undetected. When you go to a website, your ISP will still have access to see where you're going based upon IP address. They just won't know what the the associated domain with that is unless they do some reverse lookups. Is there any downside to this? Is is it taking away some some helpful visibility? Uh, it can take away helpful visibility from the standpoint of cybersecurity if you're an employee. So certainly, uh, there's also another downside in the sense that we've had DNS. I guess you could say DNS over UDP, if you will, for mm. 30 to 40 years, and it's be- become a, a mainstay. And I think that with new technologies and with uh, changing the uh, essentially the transport protocols of one of the most relied upon protocol on the internet, I think that can lead to some unexpected outages or problems depending on how it's implemented on a per vendor basis. And let's not forget the uh, the internet industry adage of if anything is wrong it's always dns <laughs> <laughs> right right fair enough fair enough all right well the the march of progress continues right that's exactly right and uh, there are all six major browser vendors that will be supporting dns over https it's not enabled by default today in fact google chrome is doing a small pilot with this uh, turning it on uh, for a small segment of users uh, by default if you're a casual non-techie uh, i would say watch this space over time perhaps in the next uh, three six nine twelve months we should see the maturation of these browsers implementations over 
D-O-H. But if you're a geek like me, I I don't see many downsides to turning it on today, just as long as you remember that you have it enabled. So if you're seeing some weird behavior by your browser, maybe some outages or not able to access some websites, remember, you might have to turn that module off to, Hmm. to, to rule that out. All right. Well, good advice. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.